0: from. Mark Phillips was once a biochemist and stand-up comedian. He was also the winner of the Warner Brothers National Steve Martin Comedy Contest in Hollywood. Dr. Mark Phillips was a skeptic who wanted to know the truth. He set out to disprove the Bible, but found the love of God was too great to escape. The scientific rationale for a creator and the veracity of the Bible were too strong to deny." In fact, many findings from his efforts to disprove the Bible later became part of his doctoral dissertation. Dr. Mark now serves as the chair of theology and science at Trinity Academy. In Valencia and we are so privileged and honored to have this guy in the house Uh, I actually met Dr. Mark uh, at Hume Lake I was speaking at Hume Lake for his school and a few other schools and him and I just began to talk um, because his son actually has a similar heart condition to Brindley my daughter and so we began to talk and as we were chatting uh, it quickly became apparent that here's a man who loves science and loves God And I love hearing his heart for those things. And he teaches to high school students, loves sharing in youth group settings like this. And so I'm so excited for what he has to share tonight. Now, there's going to be some things that he shares that just are like blowing your mind and you want clarification on. That's why we want you to have this number. Please, please. He's going to share for a little bit. And then the bulk of the night is going to be you guys asking questions and him engaging with your questions. And so my hope is that wherever you find yourself tonight, if you're a total skeptic and you want nothing to do with God and you think God is a ridiculous idea, we are so glad you're here. I am so glad as a pastor that you are here, and my hope is that you get a few answers tonight. Maybe you love Jesus, but you want to understand a little bit more why, some of the evidence behind it. My hope is that you're blessed tonight and that you gain a little bit more insight. Um, but please, text in your questions. As honest and real as you can be, the better, and we'll have an awesome discussion. So, without further ado, can you give a huge round of applause to Dr. Mark Phillips? Woo! And hey, as, uh, as Dr. Mark is getting ready, would you guys just pray with me real quick? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are our creator. I thank you, God, that, that science is not your enemy, but, but science is a lens through which we can actually see you at work in the world. And God, I pray that you would be with Dr. Mark, that you would give him your words and your heart, and you would be with us as we're listening to this. And from whatever walk of life we find ourselves in right now, whether, we're, whether we are totally um, opposed to you, God, we think you're a ridiculous idea, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. And whether we're looking for some real answers to the reasons that we believe what we believe, would you speak to us? So thank you, God, for this night. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Hey, amen. one more round of applause to Dr. Amen. Mark. So... Um
1: I speak to groups everywhere and there, there's one thing, there's really one thing other than uh, the true hope in Jesus that gives me hope as I see a world uh, that is in many ways growing darker and that is gatherings like this. I see guys like you and it's, it's just, it's amazing. It warms my heart and it encourages me. You will be facing a lot as you grow older um, but if you stick to the truth, there's nothing, there 's nothing to fear in seeking the truth. In fact, the most important question that can ever, ever be asked is this idea of, of truth. What is truth that 's the most important question to ask. it 's the most important question that can ever be answered, And it leads to the other two most important questions. Who is Jesus and what are you going to do about him? Now I don't know if everyone uh, here tonight is a follower of Jesus. I actually hope that some of you are questioning, some of you are wondering. 90%, 90% of people who do not believe the Bible is true say so because they think it conflicts with science. They think that the truth of science really conflicts with what the Bible claims to be true. And hopefully by the end of our short time together, we'll make a little dent in that myth because it is indeed a myth. I was an animal surgeon and analytical biochemist at Vanderbilt when we started cracking the molecular code and it started looking like somebody had to program this code. And so I set out on a long search to try to find out who or what. It, he or she if this thing this person this this designer exists I wanted to know if this is someone who could be known and so I started a long trek through many different religions I spent one summer at a Kundalini ashram. I spent time in a Buddhist temple I studied Hinduism uh, I got involved in the Rosicrucian order the Astara fellowship the self-realization fellowship started by Paramahansa Yogananda, Transcendental Meditation by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And I began to investigate and look and look and look because until then, I had been an agnostic, I had been an atheist because I thought as a scientist, all there was was the natural world. But when we started cracking the molecular code, that changed everything for a lot of people. And let me tell you, there are many, many closet believers in the scientific world right now, but they have to hide because they're afraid they'll lose their tenure track. I teach at the secondary level. I, I used to teach at the seminary level. I teach at secondary level because I'm free to teach what I want to teach, but it has to be in a private school setting. I've uh, worked with seminaries in China, seminaries in India, uh, seminaries in, in Lagos, Nigeria, and worked with a the church there. I taught at a Christian school in Venezuela, but I always have to keep within those circles or else you will lose your profession. But there are many closet scientists because the evidence each year and now on a monthly basis is mounting more and more and more to follow Jesus. And so I look at young people like you and I get encouraged because you are fighting against the current of scientism, which believes science is the ultimate authority. You are fighting against the current of the self-oriented narcissistic culture that thinks your thoughts are the single most important thing in the universe so turn to the person next to you and say there is a center to the universe and share with them you are not it." (laughs) so this, this whole narcissistic, self-focused culture, it was epitomized to me uh, in the gym in December. I, I was already grumpy because I was at the crunch machine. I was a few weeks out of my hernia repair surgery, so I couldn't do the full weights I wanted to do. I was doing about one-third, and it was hurting so badly. My abdominal muscles developed vocal cords, began screaming, and so I'm already in a bad mood, and then these People with phones, right, in their ears, completely oblivious to anyone around them, they start surrounding me. Just not even aware I'm there, and I'm grumpy because of the, the crunch machine failure I'm experiencing. And so, this one guy, he's a big old guy and shaved head, and he's, he's obviously listening to metal music. And he's, he's, uh, he's really good at the, the metal voice thing. You know, it's like Satan would be Lord if he wasn't so evil. And so, and I'm sitting there listening to this guy. And later on, I I develop a conversation with him. It turns out to be a really nice guy. Uh, He is in the music industry. He does have a heavy metal band. So we connected because my son is a member of uh, Foster the People. And so he's like, wow, that's the Pumped Up Kicks band? I'm like, "Yep, they they actually have some other songs too. But yes, the Pumped Up Kicks band. So we we hit it off. And now I'm able to kind of witness to this guy. And then there's uh, another guy, he's about 10 years older than me, so he's real inspiring because he just chunks the weights around, but he slams them down so loud, it just, it startles me, it, it, it constricts my, uh, my vasoconstriction of my vessels, my blood pressure goes up, and he's like, clang, really loud, clang, really loud. Then there's this other guy, the most bizarre thing i ever heard, he's listening through his headphones, and he's like... And he's, he's like doing ballet or something, and only he's, he acts like he's listening to metal. He's like. <laughs> and so I'm like dodging his foot, he's oblivious to me. And there's another lady with, with phones on, and she's sitting there and everything she says ends in a question, and she's talking so loud you can hear throughout the gym. And so I thought I should be mad at him but it turned out maybe I shouldn't have been, and maybe he really uh, wasn't the, the, the kind of guy I thought he was, and so maybe we could have a relationship. You know what I mean, right? And on and on, and this is going on all around me. And I'm realizing this is our culture. Now you have the normal gym thing, you know, the guy in the mirror, and, right? You have the normal gym thing going on, but this was, this was, topping it all off, and so it, it hit me. People are not listening to the voices of truth. They're listening to the electronic voice. They're listening to the political arguments going on. They're not hearing the voice of truth, and so they're not even asking the most important question. Now, this is nothing new. Pilate himself, standing next to the ultimate authority on truth, Standing next to Jesus himself. Jesus says, those, those who know the truth, they hear my voice. And Pilate, here he is, the ultimate expert on truth. Truth incarnate, Jesus himself. Pilate says, wow, what is truth? And walks out. And that's what we have going on today. And people look to science to think it's the ultimate authority. But hopefully, what you will see today Is that science is not in conflict with the Bible In fact, science as we know it today Would not exist without Christian thought It's founded upon the Christian truth That there is a personal, rational God Who created a personal, rational universe That can be studied and can be understood I'm not sure if this thing's working, is it? Oh, good So we're going to try to answer two questions that any, e- either one of these questions we could do a full 40 minutes on, so I'm going to really fly, so kind of buckle up your seat belts, jot down your questions, text them in, but um, your pastor asked me to cover these two topics. First of all, is there proof of God in cosmology, in, in the study of the universe, and is, is there evidence of a designer behind that? And then secondly, how should Christians respond to evolution? So right away, when we look at the Bible itself, it makes certain predictions about cosmology. They are unique to the Bible only. No other ancient text, religious or secular, in fact, no text until the 20th century made the kind of predictions that we see with the Bible. Now these are the predictions that it makes. This is not working real well here. I'm not sure what's going on. What's happening, what's happening? Okay, so I w- is that it? Oh, good, okay. Now, understand, this is an ancient text, this is the Bible, and it makes predictions about cosmology. Fred Hoyle, a leading atheist physicist from the 20th century, by the end of his life, he was at least, uh, a deist. He may have become a theist. He may have become a believer. Not really sure because he became private. But very vocally, he was an atheist for much of his life. And he himself said the Bible is full of cosmological predictions and they happen to be accurate. The Bible predicts that God's laws are constant and reliable. This is straight out of the Bible, Jeremiah 33:25. 25, God's making a promise to Israel and says, just as the laws I have created are fixed and constant, so are my promises to you. Well, that was the whole foundation of modern science was that particular verse. Also, the whole universe was created out of nothing. Now, people think other religions say this, but they don't. They don't say this at all. There's a cyclical idea in Hinduism and Buddhism, which was a a growth out of Hinduism. Uh, Gatma Buddha found much of Hinduism distasteful to him, so the whole Buddhist thought was created. So the Bible alone makes the unique prediction that the universe was created out of nothing. This was scoffed at until the 20th century. Everybody thought... The universe was static, meaning it had always existed and always would. The Bible also predicts that the whole universe is in irreversible entropy. That just means it's gradually losing energy. It's on its way to what we call cold death of the universe. We'll talk about that. And the whole universe is expanding. Remarkable a remarkable prediction on the part of the Bible to say that the whole universe is expanding and there are numerous, numerous, numerous scriptures about that, right? And then finally, the universe is fine-tuned by a designer. This is also predicted by the Bible, that the universe itself is fine-tuned, especially you see in Romans 1, they are without excuse. So let's just look at some of these. First of all, God's laws are constant and reliable. Everybody. Uh, everybody always already accepts that. They already accept that. What you don't hear a lot about is Jeremiah thirty-three twenty-five, 25, where the Bible makes the statement that the laws are fixed. This was the scripture upon which modern science was founded. Scientists back when science was being birthed were mostly theologians. They were priests. They were monks. They were itinerant preachers. And they called science back then natural philosophy or natural theology, just the study of God through nature. Later on, when the confessions were coming along, the Westminster Confession, the Belgic Confession, the Belgic Confession itself said God has expressed himself in two books, the book of scripture, our primary authority of all truth, and the book of nature, which God reveals himself through. So we see in the early founding of science that it's rooted in theology and it's because these laws are naturally fixed. Also, these are just some examples, right, of the fixed laws of the universe. Now these are very fine-tuned. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. I just listed gravity's constant. Gravitational constant determines how bodies act on each other. But you have all of these other physical constants and there are hundreds of them that we have learned to measure, uh, define mathematically, uh, define through actual experimentation, and we make predictions about the cosmos based on these, uh, these, these constants of the universe. Well, that's exactly what the Bible predicted. What about the next one? Well, the Bible predicts that the whole universe was created out of nothing. Now, the next two are gonna show how that's true, and I'm gonna give you something very, very simple, very practical, that you can take with you and bewilder and dazzle your unbelieving friends as they fall to their knees and turn their lives over to Jesus because of this information you're getting ready to share with them. But this is Hawking, Stephen Hawking, everybody knows him. Penrose was his, um, uh, was his graduate thesis advisor. Penrose was actually from Oxford. Uh, when I studied at Oxford, I learned that they share um, thesis advisors at the graduate level. And so sometimes you'll see Oxford Dons uh, advising uh, Cambridge students and Cambridge professors advising Oxford students. And so they developed a relationship during Hawking's years as a graduate student um, in physics, astrophysics, quantum physics at Cambridge University. And they concluded in 1970 that if mass exists, and general relativity, Einstein's space-time theorems, if mass exists, we all know mass exists, just touch yourself, that's mass, right? If mass exists and general relativity reliably predicts cosmic dynamics, then space and time must be created. Space and time must be created, and even said implying a causal agent. Well, that causal agent we know is the God of the Bible. Now, by 1979, they had developed this theory more, but then began to backtrack on it. So Hawking and Penrose now have tried to come up with models because they tend to lean toward atheism. They've tried to come up with models and actually overcome what they originally said. But here it goes. This is what will tell you that the universe definitely had a beginning. Now, the whole universe is in irreversible entropy. That just means it's, it's cooling off, right? You can stick the thermometer of the, under the tongue of the universe or in the armpit of the universe or, or like somewhere else, right? Maybe that's, maybe that's hell. I don't know. Um, but the whole universe is growing colder. And what it really means is ordered energy is gradually becoming disordered to where eventually we're going to reach cold death. Now at first that sounds really depressing, but think about what it really says. When I ask you this question, and this is a question you'll ask your friends, the whole universe is growing colder, eventually it's going to achieve cold death. And you ask them this question, why haven't we reached that place yet? Why haven't we reached the place of cold death yet? What's the answer? Some brilliant logician out there. Why haven't we achieved cold death of the universe yet? We're on our way. Every astrophysicist agrees. Why haven't we gotten there yet? Yes? Uh, No, we're talking about the whole universe. Whole universe, but that's okay, that's Earth. We're talking about everything. Billions of galaxies, billions of stars within those billions of galaxies. Eventually, all of those stars will burn out. The whole universe will go black and grow cold. We know that's the destiny it's on. We have measurements, but we haven't gotten there yet. Why? It's, it's, it's a real fundamental answer, yes. Yes. There hasn't been enough time. Very good. And so what's the implication? Wait a minute. Hasn't the universe been around forever? And wouldn't forever have been enough time to get to zero? Do you see the problem for the atheists? If the whole universe is on track to growing colder, and it is... And we haven't gotten there yet, obviously, because we're sitting in here talking about it. There hasn't been enough time, but forever would be enough time. So the universe has not existed forever. And so here's, you can just have a little napkin in the restaurant and and do it right there. Just draw a little y-axis, that's universal energy. And your x-axis is time, and you can put a little spot there and say, here we are now. Eventually, it's going to grow absolute zero cold, right? And you ask them the same question. Why haven't we gotten there? Because there hasn't been enough time. Then the universe hasn't been around forever. That means a causal agent had to create the universe because it wasn't around to create itself. It cannot create itself because it once was not an it to be here in the first place. So the universe came into existence out of absolutely nothing. And we also know time was also created and that is also predicted in the Bible. The Bible itself says not only stuff, but time itself was created. Same thing with the next one. The next one says the whole universe is expanding. Now, hopefully, uh, there's supposed to be some kind of printout. I don't know if y'all got it. You can get it next week if they didn't print it. It has all of these scriptures that make these predictions. This one is the most astounding of all. Psalms, Isaiah, throughout the New Testament talks about God spreading the stars out like a canopy. The Hebrew word there literally means expanding them. And we now know the universe is in expansion. So think about this for a minute. Now, if the whole universe is in expansion, we're gonna start running into the same kind of problem as we are with time. But let's just look at uh, some of the problems. First of all, it's predicted by Einstein's space-time theorems and his relativity that the universe is expanding. And the conclusion, therefore, of an expanding universe due to these space-time theorems is that it had to have a beginning. This disturbed Einstein so much He didn't want to accept his own conclusions. He he brilliantly mapped out space-time theorems and relativity, and the conclusion was, whoops, the universe has a beginning. And he wasn't comfortable with that because he was putting forth one of the early arguments against a universe that had a beginning, against a static universe. He was promoting that it did have a beginning. So much so, he fiddled with his own equations and threw in what's called the Einstein static constant to try to fix the equations to prove the universe had always existed. But later on, he changed his mind and he realized, nope, my original equations were accurate. Now, why is it such a problem? Look at some of the quotes related to this. We now know that general relativity, Einstein's space-time theorems, has now been proven, look, to one trillionth of a percent. It's actually more verified than Newton's laws of motion. So we either need to change it to Newton's theories of motion or change Einstein's theory of relativity to the laws of relativity because it's more well demonstrated. So all reasonable cosmic models, that is explaining the existence and the action of the universe, they're subject to the relentless grip of relativity. It means if relativity equations and space-time theorems, if they prove the universe is expanding and therefore had a beginning, we must accept it, or else we're going to have to throw out Newton's laws of motion. And we're not about to do that. Now look at this. Alexander Velinkin, not a Christian by any means, but in his paper he wrote, It, the cosmos can't possibly be eternal In the past, there must be some kind of boundary. He means a time boundary. As I move backwards in time, there's a place where the universe begins. The relentless grip of space-time theorems prove that. Einstein himself uh, came down here to California, went and looked through um, Hubble's telescope, not the one that's out in space, obviously, uh, down here at Mount Wilson, Hubble convinced Einstein of the redshift. Now the redshift is the Doppler effect on light. You know how the Doppler effect works with sound. As it's approaching you, it's crunching the sound waves together and they kind of drop. Then as it goes away, it's spreading them apart. As it goes, right, Doppler effect. They're crunching together going up. Do that in the restaurant with your friend. It'll be awesome. Okay. Light does the same thing. Right? The redshift is down to the low end. So it's it's, it's like indigo violet, indigo violet, indigo red. Indigo violet, indigo violet, red. Light does the same thing. Einstein looked through the scope, saw the redshift. The stars... The galaxies on the outer portion of the universe are moving and expanding out faster than our location and so the light is shifted toward the red end of the spectrum. It's the Doppler effect on light. And urban legend has it that after that, he emerged uh, with Hubble and, and Hubble's crew and Einstein brought some guys with him and he goes to the press. So, I now see as a necessity for a beginning and he walked off and everybody was like blown away you've got to remember up until the 20th century everybody thought the universe was around forever but Einstein himself right the most well-known physicist of his time, brilliant mind, wonderful character I now see the necessity for a beginning and everything changed suddenly we had to have an explanation for the universe once not being, and then all of a sudden being. What theologians for hundreds of years have been saying creation, ex nihilo est, out of nothing, everything, exactly as the Bible predicted it. And it's an expanding universe, both proven mathematically and through the redshift. And then finally, we see that Many, many physicists started struggling with this. They started struggling. Again, any universe that on average expands has a beginning, including a beginning of space and time, thus implying a causal agent. Okay, so here's your little drawing you do in the restaurant with your friend. After you've done the Doppler effect of light, Doppler effect of sound, you take your little pad out and you draw the beginning of the universe as a dot and then little dotted lines. It's expanding. It's expanding, it's expanding. How big is the universe? It's about 13.73 billion light years across, pretty big. Light travels 186,000 miles per second. So multiply that times 13.73 billion years. It's really big, but it's not what, infinitely big. Why is it not infinitely big? because it hasn't been expanding forever. It's been expanding for about 13 to 14 billion years, but it hasn't been expanding forever. That, again, points to a beginning. Now, finally, we look at the universe being fine-tuned. These are just a few. These are just a few of the necessary factors for life on Earth to exist, simple life let alone complex life like amphibians, reptiles, mammals, and those special hominid mammals called Homo sapiens sapiens, right? Gotta have the right kind of universe, perfect galaxy. You gotta be located in just the right place of the perfect galaxy. There's only about 0.1% of the galaxies could even fit the right model. Um, But you have to be in the perfect space called the Goldilocks zone of the galaxy. Then you have to have a perfect star, just the right size at just the right age of star, right? Our star right now is increasing in its brightness, but not too bright to burn us up. Some of the global warming is the sun getting warmer. That's a whole nother lecture. But the sun right now is at a minimum of solar flares. One solar flare could wipe out all life on Earth. But it's at a minimum right now because of the age of where it is. Right now, the earth is ideal to allow billions of human beings to live on the planet. At the same time, we have the technology to spread the gospel throughout the world. We have the means and the ability to spread the gospel to billions and billions of people. It's just a matter of will. And if my generation has failed it, I hope your generation will finish the task because the way things are going in Russia and China and North Korea and the Middle East, Jesus is going to need to be coming back soon, right? And so we've got to finish the Great Commission and we have the ability now and we have more people on the planet now than all of history combined, ready to hear the good news of Christ. At the time, our sun is at its most optimal to allow for life. So those are just a few of the fine-tuning. Now look at this. These are necessary galactic solar planetary body features. They began studying these features in the early 90s, early mid-90s. They found 41 features. And so you have like a 10 to the minus 31 chance. That's one with 31 zeros after it. But just 11 years later, and this this has not been updated in 10 years, by 2006, 676 features. They're well over 1,100 now, but they're still calculating the probabilities. Probability 10 to the minus 556. One in 10, a one with 556 zeros off of it. That is much more than all of the atoms in the total universe. So the chance of having everything fine-tuned perfectly to allow just simple life, just bacteria, that, that exponential uh, number there more than doubles when you're talking about complex life. All of these necessary features, these necessary factors have to be in place to allow complex human life on this tiny little planet amidst the universe, right? So we are also adding, it's going up about a million or adding six zeros every month. So you can do the math from 2006 to now. Every month we're we're finding more and more unique features that require life on Earth. Anybody who says this is an accident that this is just coincidence, this is a quirk of nature, this is wild chance, is just denying the whole discipline of statistics. Statistics say the chances of having life here on Earth are like blindfolding a person and saying pick one atom out of the entire universe. Oh, but wait, let's Let's multiply the atoms of the entire universe by several thousand before you do this and reach in and find that special gold atom. That's the chances of having complex life on earth. There should not be life anywhere in the universe. That's what probability tells us. There should not be life anywhere, yet we know there is here. So when we look at these necessary features, we look at just one now, dark energy. How many of you have heard of dark energy before? Dark matter, dark energy. This is what controls the expansion rate. Did you know gravity, if it was any stronger than just a few tiny fractions of 1%, the beginning of the universe would have done this and collapsed back in on itself before the inflationary universe had a chance to expand and develop. Had gravity been just a few fractions of a percentage point, weaker, the universe would have expanded so fast, the most you would have is a little bit of hydrogen, maybe some helium. But certainly not the development of complex life here on Earth. So this points to the fact that there is a fine-tuner. Dark energy is even more fine-tuned than gravity. Dark energy controls how fast the universe is expanding. When it first was expanding due to gravity, it was slowing down, right? But then a few billion years ago, dark energy took over, started winning the battle against gravity, and it started speeding up. This is very to locate the just right planet orbiting the just right star with the just right Jupiter to catch space debris to protect that just right planet with those complex little rebellious human beings on it who need to hear the gospel, orbiting around that just right star at the just right size, at the just right age, at the just right time. All that has to be taking place and it wouldn't be possible if the universe weren't expanding at a perfect rate. How fine-tuned? It's fine-tuned 10 to the 120th precision. Now to get an idea of this, uh, Caltech and MIT astrophysicists created a gravity wave telescope, a beautiful instrument, the most finely tuned instrument in human history. It's fine-tuned 10 to the 23rd power, and it's considered the ultimate precision machine in the history of humanity, and it is. It's quite a machine. But just this one factor of dark energy, remember dark energy is one of hundreds of factors, but just this one factor of dark energy is 10 to the 97th power more fine tuned than the MIT Caltech gravity wave telescope. So just think about it. Whoever designed dark energy is 10 to the 97th power more brilliant and better funded than Caltech and MIT. Think about that, 10 to the 97th power, this is one factor of hundreds. Now, when dark energy was finally verified, it disturbed a lot of atheist physicists. And so, you see all kinds of quotes. If dark energy is true, they call it the cosmological constant, then an external agent intervened in history for reasons of its own. Now, in this same paper, these authors said, arranging the universe as we think it is. In other words, if dark energy is real, if it exists, then it would require a miracle. Well, they didn't like that conclusion. So the only reasonable conclusion, they say, near the end of the paper, is that we don't live in a world. We don't live in a universe that has this dark energy constant, this cosmological constant. It must not be real because we can't possibly have something that fine-tuned. If we do, it looks like there's a fine-tuner and that he fine-tuned it for his own reasons. Well, after they published this paper, it was only a few months later that nine independent observations and sources, nine independently working with each other verified the existence of dark energy. And they had to rescind their statements that we must not live in the universe with a dark cosmological constant. And so the conclusion from space-time, from dark energy, from the theorems, from the uh, cold death of the universe, expansion rate, there must be a transcendent cause to the universe beyond space, time, matter, and decay. And Sir Fred Hoyle, he's the one who gave us the term Big Bang. Here's what he said near the end of his life when he realized... Yeah, the universe was created by a causal agent. He said, an external agent, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as the chemistry and biology. This is Sir Fred Hoyle, leading astrophysicist of the 20th century, atheist early in his life and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. Sir Fred Hoyle himself admitted that, and so exactly what the Bible says. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Now, this psalmist wrote this without any knowledge of what astrophysics would reveal to us in our day and age. We look through the Hubble telescope now. We do space-time theorems, the theory of relativity. We indeed realize that there is a creator to the universe and he has fine-tuned it and he has designed it for life here on Earth. For such a time as this for billions of human beings to be occupying this planet at a time we have the capability to spread the gospel instantly all across the globe so that's our first little section if you have questions about that you're going to want to text them um, how are we doing on time by the way yeah, okay, we're gonna have to go really fast through evolution, because I know this was a, a special thing. How should we, as Christians, respond to evolution? This is a very famous picture. It's mythological. No such, no such uh, progression exists. First of all, you have a big problem of origins. We now know that DNA is programmed information. Well, if you went into Microsoft up in Seattle, and he said, I'm a software programmer and I believe we can build a program by just randomly throwing things together, you would not be hired, right? Genetic engineering requires engineers. Computer engineering requires engineers. The information in DNA requires a programmer. In the human DNA, there are 3.1 billion bits of information. It would take 60,000 pages at 500 words per page to store all of the information in book form that's in one DNA of one cell in the human body. So there's five basic categories of evolution and this is where a lot of people don't get the truth about evolution. We have microevolution, that's just a change within a species. When you go and you buy a purebred dog, like my late Cocker Spaniel, uh, Samson, may he rest in peace, precious little guy. He died last April, I'm still mourning him, that's pretty sad. Okay, so, so when you buy a purebred dog, that's microevolution. All dogs came from wolves, right? Speciation, that's just change again within a species. This is what Darwin witnessed with the, the, the uh, finch beaks. Microbial evolution, these are things taking place in microbial life, especially like bacteria. We would expect to see changes there because they are so large in number. It requires trillions times trillions times trillions of individuals in a particular species population to get changes. Well, we as billions of humans don't come anywhere close to that. They did a study, 20 year study on E. coli, a particular type of bacteria and they wanted to see if mutations caused evolution and all this. After 20 years, they indeed witnessed some changes but guess what the E. coli was at the end of 44,000 generations in 20 years it was an E. coli, it had not changed into a cat. It was still just E. coli bacteria. And this is the the simplest form of life. Now there's no such thing as simple life, even a bacteria is complex. We would expect in the fossil record, if the Bible is true, we would expect a rapid appearance of life forms, special creation, we would expect them to stay pretty much the same. We would expect no transitional forms between different species, right? Because God's specially creating these life forms. We would expect um, uh, a temporal paradox. What this means is if there are species that look like they might be linked, they're gonna be out of time sequence because they're really not linked together. So you're going to have one more complex species occurring before a less complex species in a supposed Darwinian tree line, right? And we would expect to see rapid extinction, rapid reappearance, just as the Bible describes. The Bible describes um, the, uh, the rapid extinction and rapid reappearance of things like dinosaurs. It doesn't talk about dinosaurs specifically because they weren't discovered until a couple hundred years ago, right? And so... Um, we look, at, we look at the dinosaurs. This was the first one found, Megalosaurus from the Jurassic period. What we observe with the dinosaurs is exactly what the Bible predicts. So this is kind of a timeline. Notice up there it says Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous, and I know I'm really flying, but because we wanna get to Q and A. Those are the three eras of dinosaurs. Now way down here, 3.8 billion years ago, that's when <clears throat> first microscopic life now exists. Problem, problem for the atheists. There was a cosmic bombardment of Earth causing just absolute uh, volcanic eruption, cosmic bombardment. It's called the Hadean period, named after Hades. It was that bad. There was no life possible. And this took place until 3.85 billion years ago. It took it 50 million years to cool off and then suddenly complex cellular life appears as if somebody just specially created it. The Cambrian explosion, see that little purple Cambrian? All of a sudden, out of nowhere, all the major body types that we know today, most of them, appear suddenly in the fossil record. No prior transitional species exactly as the Bible would predict it. But the the dinosaurs themselves, they come in these three periods. 201 million uh, years ago, there was an extinction event for the first period, the Triassic. Probably a massive volcanic eruption from asteroid event. But immediately, immediately, we see the Jurassic dinosaurs. Right, now Jurassic Park, they had some Cretaceous dinosaurs in there. I know, I assume it tore you up also, right? But but immediately the Jurassic dinosaurs appear. Some kind of extinction event occurred, probably the plant decay, their food source, boom, they're gone. But immediately after they're gone, the Cretaceous, the great ones, the T-Rexes, right? They pop up again immediately, and then we know what that extinction event was about 65 million years ago, a comet... Uh, or asteroid lands in the Cancun Peninsula, poisons the whole pa- planet. Within months, they're wiped out. But within five million years, we have complex mammals and complex birds appearing. Again, it looks as though they were just specially created. And then one other thing I wanna show you. One of the well-documented microevolutions that has changed within a species is the horse. Now. We believe the horse, we have some good fossil record, that it gradually got larger, uh, its teeth slightly changed, and its hoof uh, went from three toes to the hoof as we know it today. Very minor changes, all, all, this is key, all already present in the genetic coding. So due to probably predation, the horse gradually got bigger. It took it 50 million years to go from this horse about yay big to the horses as we know it today. And if you doubt that, that genetic coding is still in there and in the last generation we have recaptured that genetic coding and now we're making horses like that. We are actually making horses like the original horse because that genetic coding is still in there. And they're, they're called mini horses, some call them micro horses, uh, some are call them, calling them Eohippo horses, the original name of the original horse. Thus, showing that the genetic coding for this big guy over here was already present in this little guy and due to natural stressors, it gradually changed. But it took 50 million years within one species for these changes. The estimate for man is that he supposedly went from a pre-chimp to Homo sapiens sapiens in six million. Just about 10% of the time for the horse to make these three changes, size, hoof, teeth, they're saying that mankind gradually developed the ability to think in symbols, language, mathematics, art, music, all this, and also huge structural changes knuckle walkers, you've probably seen a chimp walk, they walk like this right? they're knuckle walkers, their acetabulum doesn't fit up in their pelvis properly and rotate As, whereas we have runway models who... You know. chimp can't do that and, they're making like $10,000 a minute and they're always angry. I don't get it, but don't have you? Don't you I, I guess they're hungry, I don't know. Um, but look at the hominids in the past. There's no intermediate species between knuckle walking and bipedal like we are. That would require enormous structural changes in the pelvic girdle, in the spine, enormous changes. You'd expect thousands of intermediate species in the fossil record, but we don't see them. We don't see these changes. There's no connection from extinct hominids to humans. We're even doing DNA testing on them. No connection whatsoever. No transitional species, no evolutionary pathway, no gradual growth in brain size. Also, archeologically, look at the last one. There's no gradual appearance of human culture. You would expect, as these apes are becoming gradually more human, that culture would gradually reflect that. Instead, what we see in the archeological record is called the sociocultural big bang. Boom, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, culture starts. And it starts right about the time scientists say that mitochondrial Eve and y chromosomal Adam occupied the planet. We now know that the DNA of mitochondria is inherited from the mother. All the DNA in the mitochondria of all races and all people groups matches. That means there was one mother. Scientists call her mitochondrial Eve. Where do they locate her? they locate her in the area theologians say would be found the Garden of Eden we also know males inherit the DNA sequencing of their Y chromosome from their father so we studied all the Y chromosome DNA sequencing in males and guess what it all matches indicating one father to the human race and he is called Y-chromosomal Adam, by scientists, not theologians. Also dated at the same time as Eve, also dated back to the region known as the Garden of Eden. So finally, we see that there is absolutely no reason to have a naturalistic explanation for the origin and diversity of life, for the origin of humans. And so I close with this. These words that are underlined here They come from the Greek word poemia. It's where we get the word poem. So when we talk about the things that have been made so that people are without excuse, there's no excuse. There's no logical, rational excuse to deny God anymore, to deny the God of the Bible, to deny the accuracy of the Bible's cosmological predictions. It's gone. There's no logical reason for it. And that's things that have been made. They are the poem of God. And then you now have this this burden on you. God expects you to be a theologian and a scientist. For we are his workmanship, we are his poem. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Your life should be a poem reflecting this and hopefully a little bit of the information you got tonight at least what you can draw on that napkin. You can display the poem of God's creation and maybe bring some of your friends to remove the logical excuse, the rational excuse to the Bible because the Bible and science do not conflict. Let's pray. God, um, we looked at a lot of stuff tonight and I just pray it will uh, land and it will settle into the minds and hearts of everyone in here that we will be able to use this information to help spread the good news that Jesus is who he says he is, the Lord and master and creator of the universe and the savior of the world. God, I pray that we will take this information not just to make us feel good about ourselves and get puffed up, but that we will really take seriously the call of the Great Commission to spread the good news because the light of Jesus is the only hope. It is the only hope of the world. And so I pray now during this Q&A time that uh, questions will be answered and everyone will be further encouraged that you are not only a God of faith, but you are a God of reason and you are a God of a reasonable faith.
0: I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.